Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. For investors firmly focused on D.C. with a big question, what does it mean for the U.S. economy, a one-off sugar high, or the beginning of a sustainable improvement in U.S. growth? Joining us now to discuss is Chris Rubke, MUFG Union Bank Chief Financial Economist. Chris, is it the former, a one-off sugar high, or the latter, the beginning of something more sustainable? Well, I guess the problem was starting in uh, 2020, they think the uh, tax reform is going to lead to 3% GDP every single year for those final seven years or so. That seems a bit of a stretch. I mean, one of the things we're struggling with here, and you know, this fiscal stimulus, it's not convinced the Fed at all, right? They're keeping their GDP call like 2% yeah. in 2020. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just going to be very difficult to achieve. One of the things we're running into is that the unemployment Unemployment rate is so low, who are we going to employ <laughs> to make the economy run faster? There's no workers. Yeah. This is the first time really in economic history, uh, modern economic history since the 70s, that we're going to test, can the economy grow without having a good labor supply. Well, Chris, you touch on something important. Uh, most economists would say that any improvement in growth is just a function of one of two things, or perhaps both, an increase in productivity or an increase in the size of the population. Are we going to get either? Yeah, I mean, we don't really get the uh, the, the population is slowing, or at least the, the baby boom generation. Uh, you know, it's a 20-year wave of people. The first one retired in 2011. You know, people who retire don't spend as much. That's the theory. Uh, you wouldn't think that the economy has as much spending power based on demographic headwinds. I think that's why the Federal Reserve has 2% growth and not 3% like the administration. Tom King? Productivity is trickier. I mean, when, you, when whenever I hear the word productivity, you really want to look at our consumer yeah. spending as investment. And, you know, consumers are spending enough right now, despite all the claims that demographics I, um, are going to hurt us. I got excited, Chris. Yep. I heard Tom King clear his throat, and I thought maybe he'd be joining us. Are, are, oh, you, with us? are you with us? You're with no, us. No, uh, welcome. Today's Wednesday. Welcome. I have to decide should I start my Christmas shopping Wednesday or Thursday? It's a very I know tough, what I want. It's a very, very tough <laughs> <laughs> you want a, a tax cut. You'd like a tax cut? <laughs> Well, I, I don't know. We'll see. There's been some interesting early analysis on that. We'll touch it. I'll rip up the script and we'll do that here uh, in a moment. Bloomberg Surveillance this morning with Chris Rupke. Thrilled he's with us. Brought to you by Invesco. Learn how Invesco's pure focus on investing diversity of thought and passion to exceed can help you get more out of life. Visit Invesco.com slash more out of life. He is with MUFG, Chris Rupke. Chris, people read your note because they know on the first page they're going to get a payoff of the linkage of the fixed income market into what's going on in economics. William Hoagland was with us yesterday. He was brilliant. And he put out a tweet yesterday. I should point out Mr. Hoagland, John, is not some young Twitter type. He's like, you know, relatively ancient. And he said, in 24 months, we're going to have a $1.1 trillion U.S. deficit. Mm. How? I'm sorry, John. Nine hundred billion is a lot, lot, lot less than one trillion. Yeah. How will your world react, Chris Rupke, when we start to frame a 
a, what is that, nine figures? I, a three, six, nine, 12 figure deficit. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm looking for anything to push up tenured treasury yields, <laughs> <That'll> <laughs> even do if it. it harms the economy. Well, Chris, I just... we got it yesterday. Yes, we, we did. Where yesterday. did that come from? I think it was just technical. I don't know where that came from. Uh, although it could have been partly the uh, the idea of greater deficits out there from the tax reform. Um, you know, we had trillion-dollar deficits during the Obama years, four years of it, ending 2012, I think it was, and 10-year Treasury yields never went up. I would like to think that, you know, $1.1 trillion deficit could push up 10-year Treasury yields, <laughs> get some more auctions of Treasuries. Maybe there'll be no one to buy them. Uh, maybe yields would go up, but I don't know. It's a it's a major question mark. To here. be clear, though, Chris, you think yesterday's unwind of that flattener going into year end was just purely exactly that unwinding Let, year end positioning. The markets feel I'm on the high achiever train every day from the suburbs. People don't talk on the train, and it doesn't feel like anyone's in. You know, the markets seem to be very thin right now. Interesting. There's, there's no corporate bond issuance. I don't trust the upward move in, movement in yields, even though I want it. But uh, yeah. I don't know if it's going to stick. Oh, we did some Fed talk this morning. Let us continue that mm. at right now. And, and you are clearly in the camp of four rate increases. Yeah. That's a nonlinear market and behavioral event. The next rate increase I'm going to suggest is no big deal. But when does the, not the pain click in, but when does the market impact click in of the second or the third or the fourth unit increase? Yeah, I mean, we always, I mean, remember, we haven't really had a major bond market sell-off, higher soaring yields for a long time. And it's really what we need to see is the Fed go consistently to start scaring people on the rate outlook a little. So they have to go March, June, September. Maybe if we get to December, they go four in a row, or we're thinking they go four in a row. Yeah. Then maybe 10-year yields break out <clears throat> above 3%. But you got to really wake the market up. Wait, they, wait, okay, better said. Yeah. When do we wake the... John, this is important. When do we wake the market up? Beautifully said. At this time of year, I say it's just months away. And then... Oh, uh, come on. You've said that, that for like I, eight years. Yes, exactly. And then uh, I'm yeah. bitterly disappointed well, by the summer when China arises and brings down all the world's stock William markets. Hoagland talking yeah. about a deficit, which would choke the yeah. United Kingdom. I, you know, I don't know what the deficit to GDP number is on that. CBO can inform us here in a couple months. Do you just assume the price of this tax legislation is deficits that you and I talked about when we had no gray hair. Um, yeah, I, I'm just assuming that we'll get through the one trillion. Although that you're right, it is a big number. I think part of the problem is we don't realize <clears throat> that right now the deficit's running about seven hundred billion. Yeah, and the auction, Hoagland has it at six hundred sixty-six yeah, billion. Yeah, and the auction schedule isn't enough to really push up yields on okay, that. Okay, so fine. An extra three hundred billion. I don't know if that's enough to oh, make. Oh, you're killing me. It's not like Everett Dirksen. John Farrow doesn't it, know who Everett Dirksen is. There's some real forces keeping. <laughs> Wait, eighty percent of our listening audience. Michael Barty, you know who Everett Dirksen is? I was sick that day. Oh man, <laughs> God, I feel how old. Much, how much coffee have you had this morning, Tom King? This, the, this, you sound the, fired the up. Extinguished. I am fired. I'll tell on, you on, why in a minute. The, on the Wednesday before <clears throat> Christmas, the extinguished senator from Illinois, Everett Dixon, who said a billion there, a billion there, or whatever. Oh yeah, what does it matter? Yeah, right? was, <laughs> that was Senator Dirksen yeah. as well. Chris Rupke, thank you so much with sure. MUFG.
John Farrow and Tom Keen uh, with you. And now we are thrilled to bring you John Lieber with PwC, who has been wonderfully, wonderfully correct about this process of tax reform to tax cuts and deficit expansion. John, you had the privilege of working with Alan Meltzer years ago at AEI. And I went back and I looked, it seems like yesterday, a wonderful discussion on, at the time, a burgeoning deficit of Alan Meltzer, led by Gordon Thiessen, and this is with Larry Ball and others, and the title of it is great. What do budget deficits do? William Hoagland suggests we are going to have a larger budget deficit, even out to $1 trillion plus in a matter of 24 months. John Lieber, what do budget deficits do, and do the senators and congressmen and women, do they care? Well, it's hard to really pass judgment on what a budget deficit does in a vacuum. I mean, the real question is, can uh, a sovereign fund and finance a budget deficit? Are there outsiders willing to lend money? What will the monetary authorities do? How fast is the rate of growth? I mean, all of these questions are important when evaluating what a budget deficit does. There's been a lot of panic about the budget deficit over the last eight or ten years after the financial crisis, and that's really calmed down. The the politics of that has really changed um, recently, especially with the election of of President Trump. So I think that, you know, the Republicans voting for this bill today are hoping that not only will this deficit not do anything, but it will be much smaller than is projected because of the growth they're going to get from the tax bill. John, talk to me about the effects that this is going to have going forward in terms of who this is actually for. There's a narrative out there that this is just for corporate America. This does not help the middle class. Can you puncture any holes in that narrative? Yeah, look, I mean, 80% of taxpayers are getting a cut next year. That's according to JCT. You're going to see an immediate increase, uh, decrease in withholding, which means that paychecks are going to grow starting in uh, February of 2018. And that's a huge effect that's going to be important to folks. Now, the dollars for a lot of people are small because the reality is a lot of lower income and middle class taxpayers don't pay a lot in tax. So it's really hard to cut their taxes. But you're doubling the standard deduction. You're increasing the child tax credit. You're doing things that will be meaningful to people who are on the you know, bottom half of the income spectrum. And the losers, John? Well, you've got you know high-income people living in high-tax states with high cost of livings, like in Silicon Valley and Manhattan, who are going to pay probably more uh, because they're going to lose the state and local tax deduction. Um, you've got you know the, the real estate industry isn't thrilled with this bill because the increase in the standard deduction means fewer people will take the mortgage interest deduction. Um, but the reality is, you know, looking across the income spectrum, most uh, individual Americans are going to get a tax cut next year. Will that be overwhelmed by higher interest rates as we move to a back-of-the-envelope 5.5% deficit to GDP? It's possible. I mean, if you look at the CB, uh, the JCT projections, you've got uh, you know higher financing costs due to the deficit, but you don't see a lot of the government forecasters saying that this bill is going to either crash the economy or I, overwhelm I, yeah, the U.S. with their borrowing. That's costs. a really important uh, distinction, John Lieber. It's not a question of crashing the economy. It is the weight of new deficit worries upon the Washington and, frankly, the national debate. Is that what we voted in last night? a new dampening or a new initiation, I should say, of deficit analysis and angst? 
Um, I, I, I think I would argue no. I think we're kind of okay. in a different era than we were even five years ago, where the deficit has just become a second-tier political consideration. Um, you've got first these tax cuts, $1.5 trillion to the deficit before any economic growth, and now you've got a lot of new spending that's coming down the pike in the next month or so. You've got disaster funding. You've got increased military spending. These are all priorities to the Trump administration, and politically <laughs> – um, I don't think the Democrats are going to score a lot of points going after the deficit. They've got a lot of other things right. that they're looking to attack. John wants to jump in here, but i got to ask one obvious question that we'll maybe get at 1 p.m. today. Is Donald Trump in any way like Ronald Reagan? Uh, he's, uh, in some sense, he's the, you know, Republican leader of his party, so I guess you, you give him credit for that. Um, I'm not really sure I'm qualified to give you a much more uh, uh, detailed analysis than that, though. Yeah. I'm going to get you Let's out of trouble. John I'm going to get John Labour out of trouble. <laughs> John, talk to me about what an accomplishment this actually is to get it done in such a short period of time, given historically it's taken years, not months. Yeah, I think the key thing, I mean, again, getting back to the deficit, the key thing here is that Republicans about three months ago said that they're, they're, they, they kind of decided to hold hands together jump off the deficit cliff, and that was really key to unlocking getting this bill done. Tax reform has been a long-standing goal for yeah. the Republican Party, um, and you know, in particular, lowering the corporate tax rate is considered a very essential pro-growth, uh, pro-U.S. policy, and you know, they, they, they didn't manage to get it done under Obama. It wasn't really on the table under President Bush, and a year into the Trump administration, they've achieved this major reform that's going to have lasting effects for decades, both on the U.S. and yeah. around the world, as other countries race to keep up with where the U.S. corporate tax rate is going. John, most economists would say that this is not the time for fiscal stimulus, that they should engage in counter-cyclical fiscal stimulus, which is a counter-cyclical fiscal policy, which would mean on a downturn, expand the deficit, and when things are good, tighten things up. That's not what's happening here. But what I find strange, even stranger than that, is this renewed worry about the deficit and the debt pile? Why are we worrying about this now? We've had years to worry about this. The debt load's been trillions and trillions and trillions, and we've added to it in multiples over the last 10 years. So why is now the time to worry about it? Well, I, I think that political opportunism is a good, a good reason for that. I'd love to hear what these critics were saying if this were going to be a deficit finance infrastructure bill, uh, where there's yeah. a lot more bipartisan buy, uh, buy-in for an infrastructure bill than there is for tax cuts. I mean, the U.S. has not had any trouble financing its deficits in recent years. And, you know, depending on who you talk to, that doesn't seem like it's going to get acutely worse in the near term. It just strikes me as odd that we're always, in fact, maybe it's not odd at all, Tom, we seem to be politicizing the deficit. It, well, it seems to be a story that's not going away anytime soon. When the Republicans were out of power, yeah. of course, they politicized the deficit, and now the Democrats I, seem to be doing the same thing. To Mr. Lieber's point, though, the conversation is nothing like it was in the early 1990s, really before the so-called Clinton surplus, and then on we go from there. What will you watch for in the next two or three weeks in the budget debate to come, John? Uh, I you know, I think that there's there's a non-zero chance of a government shutdown coming up, you know, as early as this week. Mm-hmm. Um, both chambers have to pass a bill to keep the government funded. I think they probably will, at least through mid-January. And then there's a lot of issues on the table that are going to be, you know, where there's bipartisan support for that are going to be kind of hard to do. Um, increasing the discretionary spending caps on defense and domestic spending. I'm looking out for that. That could be a significant boost to government spending next year, which would also be a significant uh, fiscal stimulus because it's all going to be added on the debt. I think there's you know a couple of help, um, what's going to happen mm-hmm. to the insurance industry, whether or not the federal government's offering support for insurers who are selling into the exchanges and losing money there. 
um, something like that could be coming down the pike. And then you've got a host of other like non-fiscal issues, uh, such as uh, what to do with children of immigrants, legal immigrants that were brought here, or what to do with surveillance authority. There's a lot of things going on that have to be resolved mm. in Congress in the next four weeks. No. And some of it's going to come, come to head in the next three days. John Lieber, thank you so much. He's with PwC and uh, gave us wonderful perspective and timeline wisdom on all of this tax cut uh, effort as well. We digress away from economics, finance, investment. We do international relations. We do politics. And maybe they all implode into what Secretary Kissinger called me, Dr. Kissinger called, told me, was without question the issue of the moment, not only for uh, Germany, not only for Europe, for the United Kingdom, but frankly for all. And this is the idea of refugees and migrants. We can avoid it. We're a transatlantic ocean away. David Miliband would suggest, no, we can't. You know the name. It is a political family within the United uh, Kingdom. He's confused on a daily basis with his brother. Uh, he has written a brilliant monograph, Rescue Refugees in the Political Crisis of Our Time. He's dedicated himself to this issue. Dr. Kissinger said to me, without question, this is the most important issue in Europe going back hundreds of years. Where's the dynamic as we end 2017? Well, the dynamic uh, today, thank you very much for having me on. The dynamic uh, today is that the refugee crisis is a trend and not a blip. The forces driving record numbers of mm -hmm. people from their homes around the world, across the Middle East, uh, across Africa, but also uh, most recently the Rohingya who've been driven from Myanmar, those forces are deep. They're to do with weak states that don't share political power. They're to do with a weak and divided international system. They're to do with tumult within the Islamic world. Those are not going away. And so not just for Europe, but for the US too, there are fundamental questions of geopolitics, which is, I guess, why Dr. Kissinger was interested in it, but also <coughs> of personal commitment and what the West stands for, because the West right. is a political idea, not just a geographic one. And it's under assault. You're, you have 120 pages here. It's brought out. It's the TED people do this, the TED speaking uh, people. But this is a heavyweight 120 pages about a massively adult topic. Let's go back to the Europe of 1912 where everything was stable and then it became instable. Uh, uh, there was an instability out of Sarajevo. And then on we go to World War I and all that. Can the refugee crisis have a, a tendencies towards a Sarajevo where it generates real instability. Well, there's a massive difference because the refugee crises of the 20th century, certainly the first half of the 20th century, were the result of wars between states. There are no wars between states today. There's no hot wars between two right. countries. What we have are so-called civil wars. In fact, they're very uncivil in various ways. Civil wars are producing record numbers of people fleeing for their lives. And that is because states are collapsing. They're not able to protect their own citizens. Sometimes they're assaulting <clears throat> their own citizens, as in the case of uh, Syria. And sometimes you've got proxy wars being fought. So there's a massive difference uh, today in terms of the origin of these refugee crises. Second big difference, the Second World War seemed like a long war in the 20th century, six years. And for America, anything over five years. It's, it's a our long civil time. war metric. Yeah. Exactly. So the wars in Congo, in Somalia, in Afghanistan, they're 30-year wars. 
the civil wars that are taking place today are longer and more mm-hmm. numerous than at any time uh, in the 19th or 20th uh, centuries. Third big change, third and final big change, refugees don't live in camps anymore. 60% of the world's refugees are in urban areas. It's a phenomenon of globalization that people are urbanizing. That's true of refugee populations as well. So the humanitarian aid model, which was about keep people in camps, give them food and water and health care. Yeah, on the border until, of Turkey and, then, and, and then, Syria. And then they'll go yeah. home. Now, well, Turkey is an interesting example. Turkey has built some of the best refugee camps in the world for 200,000 Syrians who they thought would flee as a result of the war. How many fled to Turkey? 2.7 million. So if you go to Istanbul, a thousand kilometers from the Syrian right. border, it's full of refugees. How should our listeners coast to coast respond and forget about the comfort of the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean and our good relationships with Mexico and Canada? How do we respond to the ageless emotion? Just shut the borders down. I mean, I mean, the conservatives are going to say, oh, that Miliband, there he goes with his lefty tilt again, bring in more people. And then the liberals are going to say, no, we have to bring in more and more and more. And then you have the immediate social well, tension. I think it's great. How do you respond to yeah, this? I respond to that debate? by saying the number who come here are very small compared to the number who Saw are living in Saw that chart the other day. So yeah. the U.S. has 25% of the global economy and 1% of the world's refugees. And by arguing that the administration should keep up the historic 90,000 average, we're arguing that that should continue to be a relatively small number. But these are the most vulnerable people who need a new start in life. Secondly, it's vital that countries like Jordan, who are, after all, your second closest ally in the Middle East, get the kind of support that allows them to sustain their own Are they getting stability. that from the Trump no, administration? No, they're not. Because and neither from the Trump administration nor from the previous administration. They're on a drip feed of short-term aid. The Saudis cut off all their aid, actually, two years ago. And so a country like Jordan, look, don't take it from me. The king of Jordan says his country's at boiling point. Okay, but, They've but, got 600,000 refugees. So <laughs> my point is that America's geostrategic interest as well as the moral interest symbolized by the lady on a plinth uh, in the middle of the water a couple yes, of miles from here, um, the, 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 the moral interest is not the only argument I make. I, I'm not here saying America should just have a big heart. I'm saying here it should have a smart head, which is that if you don't address these problems, it so causes your interest to suffer, not just your morals. David Miliband with us. The book is Rescue Refugees in the Political Crisis of Our Time. I think of it as something much like what Alan Kruger at Princeton would do, which is a short, heated book on the topic, whether you agree or disagree. It gets you thinking about these issues. Okay, if that's the case, and I want to go to Jordan again, here is the king of Jordan. He is is Americanized. I mean, I, I've... I've Heard him speak at a uh, major uh, independent school within uh, the United States. He's he's as ally as we can. Describe the refugees in Jordan right now. Forget about the sanitized view. What's actually there, so David? Jordan's a country of seven million people. It's got six hundred and thirty-five thousand registered Syrian refugees. They're Sunni Muslims. Uh, about a hundred thousand of them are living in camps. So five hundred thousand plus are living in towns and cities around Jordan. Take Mafraq, which is a small town of about 100,000 people in northern uh, Jordan. Its population doubled five years ago with the arrival of Syrian refugees. Half of the refugees are kids. And so immediately you've got pressure on housing, services, health care. Is there a Jordan constituency saying much as in the United States, get them out of our Jordan? Well, there's a Jordan constituency saying how much longer is this going to go on? Okay. Because this looks like a long-term uh, mm-hmm. problem. They're, they're not building a wall, and they are um, trying to uh, cope with the people who are there. What they are desperate for is some international 
uh, understanding of their situation beyond short-term aid. So they're on a, just to go into Jordan for a minute, they're on a dollar peg. They've got an IMF program, and their debt has basically doubled to 90% of GDP uh, since the refugee crisis started. And they're saying there needs to be a strategic approach. And my book says employment for adults is only going to be possible if countries like Jordan get macroeconomic help. Half the refugees are kids, so it's crazy that 2% of the world's humanitarian aid budget goes on education. That must be increased. Thirdly, these people don't need food and tents. They need cash because they need to mm -hmm. be part of, the, part of the Jordanian economy. There's one <clears throat> other thing they need, which is that for the King of Jordan, the politics in Jordan are five times more difficult when it looks like the U.S. is saying we're not going to let these people come right. in to here because they're Muslim. That's a political problem not just a problem for the individual refugees. In the, in the time we have left, yeah. we've got 18 topics to talk about, including why someone should go to your Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Let me go here. You were the wonder child of the Gordon Brown era. Were you like 37 or 38? Uh, well, I wish I was 37, but I, w I wish I was 42 when I became foreign 42. Minister. Okay, you were young. Yeah. You've now had the courage. I'm for now whatever I'm old. The, Is that what you're going to say? <laughs> you're now ancient. And you, you've, you've left and you've been out working on this project and doing other things. Do you want to get back into the public swirl within a completely fractured United Kingdom? Well, I, I think that I feel I'm in the public swirl in a way. I have much less power as an NGO leader than as a government minister, but there are also fewer obstacles to me doing what I want to do. I always say to people, look, I'll choose where I put myself professionally by how much difference I can make. And four years mm -hmm. ago, I felt I could make more difference running an NGO in New York than I could... Uh, in as a politician on the back benches of the UK Parliament. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Uh, we've uh, I published this book because I think this is a symptom of the crisis of globalization that is roiling countries like this one and countries across Europe. Into Stiglitz's acclaimed book, Globalization and its Discontents. Where is this discontent of refugees and migrants in five years? I think the trends are uh, that it will be a source of more instability, because, uh, and I say that for two reasons. One, there's a crisis of diplomacy. Your State Department is being shrunk. Uh, the, really? Yeah. There's no, there's no sign of the kind of active diplomacy that will get to the roots of these problems. I mean, the crisis in Yemen is mushrooming, not going away. Um, but secondly, there is a feeling that you have to tackle your problems on the home front rather than the global problems. And right. my argument is... In the modern interconnected world, if you don't solve the world's problems, right. then you're going to have bigger problems at home. David Miliband, don't be a stranger. Thank you so much. Thank you the so monograph, much. it's a lovely short, brief, must read rescue on refugees and migrants. Bianco with us out of Bianco Research, Chicago. A few years ago, he worked for firms called First Boston and Shearson Lehman Brothers. For those of you younger, you have no idea who those firms are. That's how old we're getting, Jim. When we look at this, we look as you looked at First Boston and Shearson Lehman and UBS and other firms, it's support. Is there a support on Bitcoin? Oh, that's a good question. And boy, you're bringing me back on the memories with those firm names. Uh, well, I'm not sure what you mean by support. Let me ask you. <clears throat> okay, that. if I'm running an arithmetic, it's clearly log hyperbolic. It's clearly hyperbolic. But even now, with a logarithmic y axis showing percent change, it's bordering on allusions to a hyperbolic move up, like you'd get with a Zimbabwe dollar, whatever. 
Okay, so I got a moonshot up in Bitcoin. How does a technician of your acclaim find support on a moonshot? Oh, you you can and you can't. I mean, if you use your traditional tools, what you wind up saying is you buy it, but support where you'd want to consider selling it is a 30 or 40 or 50 percent drop. You exactly. lose half your money. Yeah, mm-hmm. so it becomes, it becomes a very difficult market from a technical standpoint and even from a practical standpoint just watching it going, you know, straight up through the, through the sky. Uh, so it is something that... You have to look at accordingly. Anybody who invests in it should be investing a very small amount of money because you can wake up and half your money is gone and you don't want to lose yeah. sleep over that. And the key sentence there, folks, and you know, I know where Jim's going on this is support is, you know, 12,000. It's like five, six, eight thousand uh, dollars below on uh, Bitcoin. Pim, do you have anything wise to say over here? You're just, well, I, no, well, I'm just, uh, well, I'm thinking about Bitcoin. Let me just give you the actual chain, the actual uh, figures here. Yeah. The, uh, of course, you can, mm-hmm. uh, it's a $3 difference in the bid ask uh, right now, yeah. I think. Uh, and yeah. we're at 1700 Hey, Hey, Jim, you know, when Tom brings up this idea of a Bitcoin, um, the fact that there may be this sort of, you know, inability to sell it, I mean, you very rarely hear people coming out and saying, sell your, you know, when to sell a stock. So, you know, it's not like you got a lot of advice on that side either. You try to dump a million shares or something, I mean, you're going to affect the price. That's right. And see, the benefit Bitcoin has right now is it only has buyers. And, the, you know, who sells Bitcoin is somebody who's already bought it and is trying to liquidate a existing position probably at a profit because of the big rally that it's had. You can't spend them. Yeah, you technically can, but not in any numbers that matter. You can't short it. So what would get the price of Bitcoin basically to crash, like some people have predicted, is you'd have to scare all of the long holders out. Probably a hack or a change of technology or something like that would make everybody afraid of the money that they have in their electronic wallet and seek to close it real fast, sell everything they've got, and get out. But that hasn't happened, so that's one of the biggest supports that this thing has going, is it's just money coming in all the time. And it, the only selling you get, it's down a little bit you know, relative to its volatility, is those are existing people taking profits. That's the only person that is selling it right now, which is why it relentlessly goes up, because more money keeps coming in all the time. If we come back in a year, do you think that Bitcoin is going to be more legitimate or another of these uh, sort of uh, coin offerings? No, I'm a, I'm a big believer in the long term of the cryptocurrencies. I mm-hmm. think that they have a real promise to fulfill a need that the world doesn't have right now. And simply that <clears throat> is we have no way to transfer money free uh, because we have to have like a credit card company or bank stand in the middle as an intermediary. And we have no right. way to do micropayments. You know, finish listening to this interview for five cents or something like that. Bloomberg can't put that on That's their website. That's too rich. We couldn't do that. Yeah, okay. Or even a tenth of a penny. We could go sub-penny because it's maybe been, that's thanks, what it's, it's been suggested. Keep talking, Jim. Yeah. It's, <laughs> right. But the point is... The meter's is that, ticking. You know, New York Times, finish reading this article for five cents. That's what Bitcoin can offer, a free way to transfer very small okay. sums of money without an intermediary yeah. taking a prohibitive cost. The intermediaries, the banks don't offer that right, right. now. That's why I'm such a big believer in it. We hear uh, Pim Fox and Jim Bianco that the president's uh, uh, signing of the bill passage, they're calling it a bill passage event, shifts from 1 p.m. to the vicinity of 3, 3. p.m. 3 p.m. this afternoon. 
and it's really not sure if there'll be Q&A. It was earlier believed there would be a chance to discuss this with the president of the United States. We're not sure right now. But the, the key point there is for those attuned to 1 p.m., we're shifting to 3 p.m. with the president uh, today as well. Jim Bianco, one of the great things, in, and again, within Bianco Synthesis, is everybody said it's a single-digit world, and yet we keep getting double-digit stock market returns. When do we get back to the actuarial assumption of a single-digit world? Yeah, it could be as early as next year. I mean, right now, the big benefit that the market has had throughout the second half of 2018 is there has been a relentless move, you know, to use Wall Street parlance, of money towards risk on. Money keeps coming into either ETFs or funds every day that invest in stocks, invest in credit, and invest in what we refer to as risk on assets. In the last couple of weeks, that's been waning a little bit. Uh, you know, it's still coming, but not as much as it was, say, three months ago. Yeah. And if it was to reverse into the beginning of the year, we could finally start seeing a correction or maybe some turbulence in the market. But right now, that's, it's just theoretical talk. We're not quite there yeah. yet. Jim Bianco, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Bianco Research with a nice update. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.